Welcome to the Pink Smoke Podcast, uh, hosted by the founders of the Pink Smoke website, myself and John Cribs and Chris Funderburg. How you doing, Chris? Hi, John. You're stumbling over your intro here a little bit. I think you're excited as I am for our guest tonight. What are we what are we going to be talking about today? Well, Chris, as I was telling you before we started this, this kind of regaling you with this story. I've seen the movie The Last Starfighter uh, start to stop maybe once in my entire life. Um, but I've read the book five or six times, both before and after seeing the actual film. I actually have this memory of being at a science fair in fourth or fifth grade, uh, sitting in front of my project, which I knew was not going to wow any of the judges, and just feeling just depressed that I didn't have anything to offer the scientific world. And I read The Last Starfighter cover to cover, the story of this, uh, you know, this kid in this mundane life in this trailer park uh, contrasted with this amazing reality that he was going to become a part of. And it was a reading experience that really affected me. And I think the same could be said with Krull or Clash of the Titans. And I know I'm hardly unique. People of our generation who love movies, but are also art and bookworms were and continue to be fascinated by movie novelizations and the expanding of these cinematic worlds in print. A quote that I love, Artists have great work on commission because a source is one thing, but what you do with it is something else comes from Alan Dean Foster, the godfather of movie novelizations. Over his 46 year writing career, he's produced 130, 140 some odd books. And between his original work, including the popular and much loved uh, Ice Rigger, Pippin Flinks, Human X Commonwealth and Spellsinger stories, many standalone novels, short stories and articles. His latest book is uh, Madrengo, which is available through World Wordfire Press. He's written several of the best known movie to novels. And we're fortunate enough to have this chance to talk with him about some of these and learn about the experiences which formed his upcoming book, The Director Should Have Shot You from Centipede Press. Uh, we're honored to welcome writer, world traveler and competitive athlete, Mr. Alan Dean Foster. Welcome, sir. Pleasure to be here, guys. We wanted to have you on specifically to discuss your current dispute with Disney, right? We read the recent Wall Street Journal article, and it's uh, you're an artist that we're very interested, John and I as fans of movie novelizations, um, but it's also a dispute that uh, is something that we feel very passionately uh, about as well, uh, what's, what's happening with you. But before we dig into all that, we wanted to take our audience a little bit through the story of your career so everyone can understand just how everything got to the point where it is right now. And I actually wanted to go back to what I understand is your very first novelization assignment, which was the Italian film Luana, the Girl Tarzan, and just ask you, how did this come about? How did you get brought in to novelize Luana? Uh, there was a change in editorship at Ballantine Books in the science fiction fantasy division at that time. Betty Ballantine, who had been uh, editing it for years, uh, she and her husband Ian uh, retired from that to start doing large fantasy art books for Bantam Books. And the gal who came and took it over was Judy Lynn Del Rey, a remarkable woman on, in, in many regards. And as happens in such cases, the new editor inherits projects from the previous regime. One of those projects was the book rights to this really awful Italian film called Luana. And this was dumped in Judy Lynn's lap. 
So Judy Lynn, I presume, looked around for somebody to try and turn it into a book for Valentine, uh, soon to be Delray books. Judy Lynn knew that I had a Master of Fine Arts in Motion Pictures from UCLA. So she probably assumed that I knew my way around a screenplay and that I might be a suitable person to try and make something out of this screenplay, out of this film. So she contacted my agent who then contacted me and I said, sure, send me the script. And Judy Lynn said, when I talked to her, well, there is no script. I said, what do you mean there's no script? How, do you, how am I supposed to uh, adapt the script if there's no script? And she said, well, there's no script, but we'll set up a screening for you in Los Angeles. And I was not married at the time. I was still living in the Los Angeles area. So I went down to the offices of uh, Mr. Saul Freed, who was not uh, in, say, uh, the class of Robert Wise as a producer, but he'd purchased the rights, the, the U.S. rights to this film. And they were putting together a big publicity, uh, by their standards, big publicity campaign. And I was ushered into a little room. This is upstairs in an old building off Hollywood Boulevard. Uh, and somebody ran a projector in the back and I'm sitting at a desk with a notepad, take notes, hopefully on this film. And what do you know, the whole film was, unsurprisingly, in Italian with no subtitles. So I have contracted to do a book version of a film that I cannot understand and I have nothing to read. And it didn't matter that I couldn't, uh, couldn't understand Italian and that there were no subtitles because you didn't need them to see how truly awful the film was. So after it's all Did over- Did you express that to the producer at any point this no, early no, on? No, 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 way too polite for that. At least I was <laughs> at that point in time. And so I staggered back to my car thinking, what am I gonna do? Well, the young fellow they hired to do the PR and advertising for the film was a fan. And he had somehow inveigled Frank Frazetta into doing two paintings that they could use as publicity for the film. One of which was slapped on the cover of the book and the other one was used partially on the back of the book. Uh, so I basically novelized Frank Frazetta's paintings <laughs> because Frazetta's version of Luana looked very different from the diminutive Vietnamese gal who was nominally the star of this film. The paintings are viewable, although they're not called Luana, I believe, in a number of the uh, reprint anthologies of Frazetta's paintings. And as you would imagine, the Frazetta's Luana looked like a Frazetta girl or woman and not like the one in the film. And I thought that was a better jumping off point for doing the book. So I wrote my own female Tarzan story, basically very, very loosely following the, uh, the outline of the film story. And uh, the kicker to that was after the book came out, because it wasn't mentioned that it was a, a novelization on the front cover, somebody from Disney called Del Rey Books and wanted to know if the film rights to the book were available. And Judy wow. Lynn, <laughs> yes, was just as disappointed as I was in having to tell them the story, but this actually is a film already, uh, even though there, you know, my version was 98% original material and nothing could be done about that. So that's how I got started doing movie adaptations. And that was the very first one. I still have the whole promotional book for collectors oh, really? who enjoy this sort of thing. They put out this big press book, uh, spiral bound with stickers and bumper stickers and uh, hired Russ Manning, who was doing, you know, did Tarzan most notably. Yeah. 
do a couple of comic strips based on Luana, which are quite nice, actually. They look very much like Manning's work. Well, they are Manning's work. No wonder they look like Manning's work. But they look like Manning's Tarzan work. And uh, so the, the, the producers went out, the producer went all out as far as he could. But the film was so bad. There was really nothing he could do. I mean, it's so bad, it's not even shown to my knowledge at science fiction conventions. It's interesting because this seems like an instance where the ancillary material outshines the original, uh, the original thing that you have Frazetta and you have the, uh, the, the comic strip and you have your book. It's fascinating. Uh, one of the things we want to talk about in this conversation is sort of the cultural position that novelizations hold and how we feel like there's a shift happening where they're finally starting to get their respect and their due. This seems like a perfect example of things of a total reversal from what it would have been at the time where the film itself was the respectable thing as bad as it was and the Frazetta and your work and everything else is sort of ancillary or am I projecting that onto it? Did you get the sense from the people that you were working with that what you were doing was important to them or just that it was all in service of this other thing? Did they care if you wrote a good book or not? I guess the producers. I don't think so. As you say, it was all ancillary, just like the bumper stickers. Now, Del Rey books or Ballantine books at the time very much cared if it was a good book because their business was to sell books. Yeah. Uh, not to necessarily promote the movie. That's why I tried to do as good a job as I could. I always tell people, I said, look, having done this for a long time, I can tell you with complete confidence that it is much easier to extract the screenplay from a book than it is to take a book, excuse me, to take a screenplay and turn it into a book. That's one thing. The other thing is this whole business about it being a commissioned work and work for hire. Uh, down through history, a lot of most great art, actually, uh, has been commission work. Uh, Bernini didn't sit around doing statues because he liked <laughs> doing statues. He did it because Pope so-and-so wanted a bust of himself on his elaborate tomb, or they wanted a fountain in the Plaza Verona. Uh, Rembrandt, I'm sure, would have been happier doing something besides painting fat businessmen most of his life. But he did that. Uh, all of these people... Uh, Mozart worked on commissions or had somebody supporting them. They didn't go into an attic and just turn out art. There are exceptions, of course. H.P. Lovecraft uh, saw himself as a 19th century gentleman and writing was kind of in some ways beneath him. So uh, he kind of treated it that way. But uh, that's, that's the exception to the rule. Most people working writers, somebody once asked if I'm getting this correctly, and I'm sure a fan will or fans will correct me if I'm wrong, Robert Heinlein started writing science fiction because it was a good way to make a living, not because he expected to become a dean of science fiction. So down throughout history, uh, this great art has either been commissioned or was written for the artist, for the creative person to make a living. And I don't see doing movie adaptations as any different from that. I think that's one of the things, I hope it's one of the things that makes my film adaptations good readable stories because that's what I'm trying to do with them. I just regard them as collaborations, just like uh, if Gordon Dixon collaborated with Paul Anderson on the Hocus stories. It's a collaboration. I'm collaborating with the screenwriters. I respect the screenwriter's vision. If I don't agree with certain things, uh, I try to change them as much as you know I can without uh, corrupting, if you will, the original vision. And that's, that's how I approach them. 
You'd mentioned um, your degree in film from UCLA. Uh, sort of funny since your next project would be a uh, novelization project would be Dark Star, which of course started as Carpenter's uh, student film at USC. Uh, do you feel that your time at UCLA and studying film uh, was a good tool for you in going into novelizations? Do you feel like you actually took anything from that experience in adapting screenplays? Not particularly with one exception. I had a, a mentor at UCLA, like so many young would-be artists do. His name was Larry Thor. Larry did bit parts in movies. He did narration for talking records and such. If you ever see the uh, the wonderful Chuck Jones adaptation of Norman Justice's The Phantom Tollbooth. Yes, absolutely. Larry is the voice of the dog Talk, one of the two main characters. Oh, okay. oh. So he was a very versatile guy and he was an associate professor at UCLA at the time. And the very first screenwriting course I took was with him. And after reading my initial assignment, he came up to me and he said, he had a very warm voice. Well, if you've heard the dog talk, you know what he sounds like. And he said, you can write. This is the assignment for the, for the class, for the semester. Go home and write. So Larry gave me time to write, which at that time in my life was particularly important because I wasn't sure what direction my life was going to take or what I was going to do for a career. And if I needed, he said, if you need any advice, if you had, need any suggestions, ask me. And I went home instead of going into those classes and wrote. And it gave me a chance to write a great deal. I did write because I took screenwriting and television writing courses, a lot of screenplays and teleplays. Uh, the funny thing, one funny thing is, uh, it, it was assumed that for your master, oh, I then went into the, got into the master's program, MFA program at UCLA in writing, screenwriting. And for my thesis, I did something that was apparently unusual at the time. I did an adaptation of a book and oh. turned it into a screenplay as opposed to the other way around. Which what was the book? The book was uh, Fire and Sword by Nobel Prize winner Henrik Sienkiewicz. Sienkiewicz, I'm not sure about the pronunciation of this day, who won the Nobel Prize in Literature in 1905 for a book called Quo Vadis, which became a very big Hollywood movie. I had spent the previous two and a half years writing nothing but original screenplays and teleplays. And I thought, I really like this book. I think it would make a terrific movie. I think it's been done as a movie, uh, if only in Poland. And so I did the adaptation. And there was quite a bit of controversy among the, uh, the committee that oversees the granting of your degree as to whether or not this would be a valid submission. It was a long book. And I had one professor whose name I sadly cannot remember, who really stuck up for me and said, um, this student has done... 12 original screenplays and four original teleplays in two and a half years. Uh, he obviously can do this. And I said, because you're sitting there with three, yeah. four professors in front of you, I said, I can, I'm happy to submit any of my other original screenplays. Uh, there's a love story, there's science fiction, there's you know, whatever you like in lieu of this. And they, you know, finally uh, said, okay, give him his degree. <laughs> All of this stuff, by the way, is in the special collections uh, section of the uh, Hayden Library at Arizona State University. It all still exists. All of these early teleplays and screenplays and other embarrassing things that I wrote at the time, <laughs> including the two-part Batman, Batman episode. Really? 
Interesting. Were you always uh, attracted to, you said that there was a romance and things in there. Were you always attracted to sci-fi and fantasy or did you get put on that path somehow by Luana? Did you get put on, on a path that you were on uh, or was that always something you were passionate about? I was never particularly passionate about it. I, there's something I like to read and enjoy very much starting my senior year in high school. But my father read it and he didn't have very much. I think he had one issue of startling stories with Stanley Weinbaum's uh, Martian Odyssey in there, which he always tried to get me to read and I never did. Uh, my father and I were at odds much of the time. He thought I came from Mars. <laughs> and he had a collection called Nine Tomorrows. It was a collection of Isaac Asimov stories, which I remember reading and enjoying very much. But I knew he liked it and it was important to him. And my uncle, Howie Horowitz, who produced the television version of Batman, uh, was a big science fiction fan and never really got the chance to do much of it. In fact, he collaborated with Heinlein on a proposed half-hour television series in the early 50s to be called The 21st Century. And I've been looking for that script ever since. I once asked Heinlein's wife, Ginny, she said, it's in the archives somewhere, probably. Never saw it. But... My uncle was interested in it. And when I got to UCLA in my senior year, started taking writing courses, I, gra- I gravitated towards science fiction because that's what I like to read. So at this point in your career, in your novelizing career, you've basically written an original novel based on a painting. Uh, you've done Dark Star, which could its high concepts could only be enhanced by its limited budget with an imaginary reinterpretation. And then the next thing you do are the Star Trek logs, the novelizing of the uh, Star Trek animated series, which you also provided much original content for, if I'm correct. Yeah, the Star Trek logs, I had written original Star Trek for an outfit called Peter Pan Records, which did talking records with sound effects. And and, uh, so I'd written seven original short Star Trek stories for them. So I'd already done some Star Trek. Uh, And then I got asked to novelize these animated episodes, two seasons of animated Star Trek on Saturday morning, because Judy Lynn Del Rey had found a uh, loophole in the contract that Bantam Books had with Paramount, where apparently book adaptations of every version of Star Trek throughout the universe forever were held by Bantam, except they neglected to include animated film. She, she immediately jumped on that, and because I had done Luan and Dark Star, she said, can you novelize, can you novelize these. And I looked at them and I said, well, these are 20 minute, these are not film scripts. These are 20 minute cartoon scripts. So I can't get a whole book out of one of these. She said, do whatever you want. So I had the idea to adapt three episodes per book, which would make them all novella length, which I thought was viable, and then put little really quick connecting passages in there to try to give, give it some kind of story flow from page one to the last page. And that's the way I did the first six. And I got a call from Judy Lynn one day and she says, you have to do, I had four episodes left that I had not yet adapted. You have to do one episode per book. And I said, I can't do that. If I could have done that, I would have done it in the beginning. She said, I don't care. She said, the books are selling like crazy. We have to get four more books out of the last four episodes. Well, I had saved what I thought were the best episodes for last. Coincidentally, they were written by people who actually wrote science fiction, Dorothy Fontana, Larry Niven, David Gerald, and I forget what the other one was. And I needed book seven right away. She needed it right away. 
So I had written a proposed two-part ep two episode for Star Trek, the television series, which I had submitted to Norway Productions, Roddenberry's production company, and which came back with a nice letter saying, we really like your story. Please submit for our fourth season. Well, there was no fourth season, but I had a 120-page screenplay sitting in my file cabinet. And what I did was I adapted that for the last part of book seven. For the last three books, I did what I had been doing all along, which was adapt one 20-page teleplay for the first third of the book. And then the last two thirds of the last three books are all original material. That was the only way to get 10 books out of the series. Wow. Can I ask you at this point with, with Ballantyne, how big of a business is novelizations? Do they have like 10 guys like you on staff doing it or is it a handful of books each year? I have no idea. You'd have to ask Ballantyne Del Rey at this point. Okay. There wasn't like a, a group of you who were all together working on the, the novelizations being forced to squeeze more books out of episodes? No, I don't think it's like that. That sounds kind of like a Hollywood studio in the 30s and 40s <laughs> where they had all the writers in a writer building. And I could tell you a funny story about that. And uh, uh, gosh, uh, well, since I can't remember the writer's name, we won't do it right now. And it's a digression anyway. But, <laughs> ah, but you know, we like digressions on this show. Be off this uh, topic as you want. <laughs> that's all right. Uh, later, maybe. No, they don't. But once you have done one, and it has been anointed as a competent piece of writing, never mind what it sells. They know you can do it, they have a tendency to give you another one when they have, uh, when they have the option available. So you do get a reputation, I'm certainly not the only one, for being able to do this sort of thing. And what you have to do essentially is be able to turn out a competent piece of writing in a very short piece of time that the studio presumably will not object to. So if you're doing the novelization of Batman Returns and you make Batman a child murderer, that manuscript's going to be rejected, uh, presumably. Recycled by Christopher Nolan for Dark Batman. That's okay. when it'll get resurrected. <laughs> but people, just like anything else, if you're a competent house painter and word gets around you know, that you can, do, you can do a house painting job quickly and at a reasonable price, you're likely to get more jobs. It's, it's just as true of movie adaptations as anything else. But no, they don't have a stable of writers sitting around. In writing both the Star Wars novelization and Splinter of the Mind's Eye, your original sequel, uh, you were a forerunner to the realm of the expanded universe or continuation novels, which kind of blurs the line between adapting a work and creating an original story with pre-existing characters. So I wanted to ask, in doing a novelization, uh, aren't you reinterpreting a script as your own story? Do you look at it as simply the reverse of a, a screenwriter adapting a novel? It's, it's a combination. Um, as the writer, and if you're doing your job, you're going to put in at least 50% original material. You have to, otherwise you, don't have, otherwise you have a 100-page book, which is obviously not going to fly. So the rest has to be original material. The trick is to do it while maintaining the same style and flavor of the screenplay. Uh, when I'm doing an adaptation, for example, The Last Starfighter, it's, it's a different approach. I hate to say stylistically, but let's, from doing the adaptation thing. Uh, you try to preserve the original, the screenwriter's vision while expanding. And 
I do it. I think it works for me because I do it as a fan. I mean, I get to make my own director's cut. That's <laughs> what fans do with fanfic all the time. I get to, if there's a character in, in the story that I really like, I get to really expand on that character, go inside the character's head, show the character doing things that I think I would like to see the character doing in a movie. And so uh, there's that aspect of it. So th that's the way I approach it. I'm really the 14-year-old kid sitting in the back of the theater with his buddies, loudly criticizing the crummy special effects. I'm that same kid, which I did a couple of times with friends. Um, and I'm that same kid. At the same time, there's a professional writer doing his job. You combine those two things, and I think you get a good movie adaptation. Now, but you had mentioned with Luana, you were screened the movie. That's not usually the process, right? Normally, you're given the script. Like in the case of the novelization of Alien, you weren't even given like concept art of the alien itself, were you? How do you, that's the process normally? Yeah, you get the screenplay. I put the screenplay to this side of my now computer, formerly typewriter, for those of you who remember those. And I look from the screenplay uh, to the computer. And I know from experience that roughly I can get three pages of prose from one page of screenplay. This sounds very mechanical, but this is the way it has to be. So, for example, I'm on page two of the screenplay and I'm on page eight of the book. I know I'm ahead and I can relax a little bit. If I'm on page two of the screenplay and I've got two pages of prose written, I'm in trouble and I need to expand something. I need to find a place to expand. So it's, it's that simple. If I'm lucky, I get uh, pre-production drawings or paintings, which is what happened in the case of Star Wars. If I'm really lucky, I'll get pictures from the set or pictures of props or costumes. Uh, I have to have pictures of the actors. Otherwise, you're in real trouble if you describe one of the performers <laughs> wrong. Uh, if you describe a Franzetta woman instead of uh, a Luana, yeah, you get getting... Yeah, exactly. Uh, so that's, that's generally the way that works. I did have a wonderful experience with Star Trek Into Darkness with doing that novelization. They actually sent me in sections pieces of the rough cut of the film. I was almost actually. And I was able to split the screen. And on the left side, I could play just like streaming anything today, the film, stop it, re rewind it, whatever, and work type on the other side. That's, that's the ideal way to do it. But it only happened with Star Trek Into Darkness uh, because J.J. Abrams and everybody involved, I presume, was concerned that the book should match the movie as closely as possible, which is what you want if you care at all about the book. And they had sufficient security so that they weren't concerned. I'm sure they were concerned. They were, felt safe enough in sending this over the internet. And what would happen is when I finished, I believe there were seven parts to it. When I finished part one, I had to delete it from my computer and then they would send me part two. They didn't send me the whole film at once, just in case, even though it was CIA-level security. <laughs> uh, you mentioned um, staying faithful to the script, but I think uh, notably to fans of uh, Alien 3, you famously changed the intro, which is hated by fans in that movie. A lot of fans hate the way that, that uh, Michael Bean and Newt are killed off. 
Um, what is the process when you try to radically attempt to change something for a novelization, right? What, what is that like? How do you, what's the give and take there? Uh, there is no give and take because the movie producers uh, and people involved with the film are far too involved with the production of the film and finishing the film to bother about ancillary rights of which the book adaptation is one. So I'm generally left alone until I finish the rough draft or the first yeah. draft. And I send that in and that's when I get feedback, if any. Uh, George Lucas's feedback on the novelization of Star Wars was good job. <laughs> because he was kind of busy trying to finish the film yeah. and get it out in theaters. Subsequently, uh, with certain films, they're ignored. Basically, nobody says anything. It's like this is this is as we say in ancillary rights, publisher's responsibility. We're busy with the film and forget about it. That happened with a number of films. Last Starfighter is a good example. Nobody bothered me when I was writing the book. Uh, the manuscript was accepted by the publisher, and the film people said nothing, and it all worked out great. That's what you want. In the case of Alien Three, the letter from Walter Hill. I didn't, the publisher Warner Books did, which they passed on to me, because I had not so much changed things. I had changed some things. You mentioned perhaps the most important one, but I had added a lot of things, which I thought, as I always try to do, rationalize what I consider to be errors in story continuity, errors in science, errors in perhaps, perhaps the personality development of the character as I read it on the page. I've done quite a bit of that with Alien 3, and I was quite proud of the result turned it in, forgot about it. This letter shows up saying, you can't do this. You have to change everything back. The book has to be written. The book has to be done exactly as the screenplay is written. We think it will make a better book. So having done a few of these things at this point, I held off saying, well, George Lucas was happy with my work and Ray Harryhausen was happy with my work and John Carpenter, and so on and so forth. I didn't do that because you can't. It's a work for hire. So I had to go back into the manuscript and take out a lot of the changes I had made. Uh, and it was very frustrating. It was the worst experience I had ever doing a movie novelization. Not the hardest one to write, but the worst experience. And then when they asked me later on, when Warner Books asked me to do the adaptation of Alien Resurrection, I said no. I thought I'm done. I'm done with this franchise. I subsequently got a letter from A.C. Crispin, who did do the adaptation of Alien Resurrection, saying, "Why didn't you warn me?" <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting too, because you mentioned the sitting in the back of the room critiquing it. Alien Three is a movie that fans in general are dissatisfied with. The director has his own cut of it. It was a disputed movie. It's fascinating. Did you recognize as, as a writer, this stuff needs fixing in a practical way? I think as fans, when they see that movie, every fan of the Alien series has their ideas about how to fix Alien 3. Did, you, did it feel that way to you? Or did it just feel like this would be better for the book and it'll be fine on screen where you don't even con consider the movie in that way? Oh, no. It was, it was a, a jumble of a script. It was obvious. To any fan who had read the script before they saw the movie, which nobody did because fans aren't allowed to do that. If they were, you'd probably end up with a better film in a lot of cases. <laughs> uh, 
no, I saw that right away. I was like, well, this doesn't make any sense. Well, why are they doing this? Well, are these guys on this planet just, you know, alien chow or do they have motivations? Do they have actual characters? And on and on and on and on. So it was obvious from the first read through. Of course, I have no input in the movie. That's yeah. not my job. I'm always happy to voice my opinions, which gets me in trouble sometimes, but that's why I don't work in Hollywood. Uh, um, so when you went into Splinter, can I just ask where you kind of started with the story? And at this point, of course, Star Wars has not been released. Uh, it has not become the cultural phenomenon that it would quickly become. Uh, and you have not even seen a lot of the, uh, con- much, too much of the concept art. So what was your, I guess, uh, what was your plan kind of going into a sequel using these characters? I couldn't use the character of Han Solo because as I understand it, Harrison Ford hadn't signed on for any future sequels in any way, shape or form. To me, no Han Solo meant no Chewbacca. Today you can do a book about Chewbacca's third cousin's uncle on the planet, you know, whatever. Uh, but at that time, as you point out, that didn't exist, that expanded universe. I was essentially said, uh, so you can't use those characters and it needs to be filmed on a low budget because George had the idea that if the film Star Wars was neither a big success or a big failure, he could make a cheap sequel using as much, reusing as much of the, uh, uh, as many of the costumes, props, backgrounds as he possibly could. No CGI back in those days, of course. So I purposely set it on a fog shrouded planet, Mimban. And a lot of it is underground because caves and tunnels are easy to do on screen. And just starting from that basis, wrote a story involving Luke and Leia with a guest appearance by Darth Vader at the end. And the rest of it is all just kind of what I could set up based on what I knew at that time about the Star Wars universe from the first film and the first screenplay that I had adapted. That's how it all came about. It was essentially, you know, with these restrictions, go write a Star Wars story. And uh, that's what I did. One quality of your novelizations, which is carried over from your other writing, is the idea of what you've referred to as giving the stories an environment. And I think Splinter of the Mind's Eye is a great example of that. Mimbam is such a memorable setting. Uh, and a lot of people have said Dagobah is got to be influenced by your depictions of this uh, planet. Uh, can you talk a little bit about adding an environment to these stories? When you write science fiction, I think you have to be careful not to make everything look like uh, suburban Des Moines. Uh, and science fiction worlds are not all the same. It's a big problem with a lot of science fiction worlds. It's all desert planet or it's all ice planet or it's all jungle planet. Uh, if you're going to do that, there's nothing wrong with that, but you have to have a reason for it. But everything is connected. And it may seem odd to bring ecology into your question, but I think it holds true. Everything relates to everything else. If you're going to have a dangerous animal in a Star Wars world, it has to relate to the ecology of that planet. It's all part of building a background that's believable. I call it maintaining the internal logic. Everything has to follow from everything else. Uh, The trees have to follow from the climate. The animals have to follow from the trees. It all has to connect up together. If you have this believable background, it makes your job of putting believable characters in that environment that much easier because they have to react to the environment 
And so the environment, the background has to be believable. It's, it's doing your homework as a science fiction writer uh, and it, as any kind of a writer, actually. Did that skill for world building develop out of doing novelizations where you have to build up the world, you know, of, of turning 20 page Star Trek scripts into full length books? Or did you get, uh, or do you think you excelled at novelizations because that was a skill you had? Sort of which was the cart and which was the horse there? I don't know if that's why I excelled at novelizations, but I've always been interested in the oneness of a world. We only have one really, certainly years ago when we had our one as an example, but I, I've always wanted to travel. That's what I always wanted to do in my life. Uh, I became a, a writer to travel, uh, not the other way around, um, although they obviously feed off each other. But it gave me a chance, building these worlds gives me a chance to travel to places I'll never be able to travel to except in my imagination. And I realized that I'm taking other people along with me. And so it has to be all believable and tied together. So the believable worlds, not only in the adaptations, but in my original work, come from the fact that I love to travel and see other places and experience other cultures. I couldn't understand when I started going to science fiction conventions, how some of these writers could create believable alien worlds and didn't travel anywhere. They did all their research out of Nature and National Geographic and Scientific American Magazine. And I, I couldn't understand how they could do that. And I've always tried to do that. I've tried to do that my, my entire life. Uh, it certainly leads to uh, color and believability, I think, in my books. Absolutely. Um, so I want to ask this next question. I want to kind of carefully walk into this next question with you because it's coming from someone who really believes in novelization as an art form. Um, but over the years, obviously, I feel like there's been a prejudice against the art. It's been dismissed as derivative, subliterate, a cut and paste job. Um, so my question for you is that over your career, have you ever felt animosity among the writer and publisher circles or felt compelled to defend your practice of novelizing? I've had, I've had to defend it all the time. Uh, by all the time, I don't mean every day or every time I talk to somebody, but frequently over the last 46 years, yes, it will come up online uh, or it will, uh, It'll come up in person, but rarely because most people are either too polite or too afraid to confront you directly about it. But you get called a hack a lot of times. Now, if I had done nothing but novelizations, I would might feel a little more insecure about it. But because the bulk of my work is original material, it doesn't bother me at all because I know it's the same writing in the book adaptation that it is in my original material. I'm just collaborating with somebody. I think you have to be dead at least a hundred years before you get a valid critical judgment of what you've done anyway. <laughs> There's really no point in worrying about it. And I think back to earlier examples, Moby Dick was not a success when it came out in the United States. Now, a lot of people think it's the greatest novel ever written in America. Uh, and you can point out hundreds of examples of that sort of thing. Uh, Alexander Dumas did a sequel to The Three Musketeers. Is that hack work? Because he did a sequel, he wrote it for money. I don't think so. It's a really good book. Yeah. Uh, Jules it's Verne did several books uh, set around a character named Robert the Confident. Uh, 
you know, it's funny you mentioned your uh, original novels. This is maybe a digressive anecdote. I told my dad, who's a huge science fiction fan, that I was going to be speaking to you today, and he was really impressed. And I said, we're going to be talking about his novelizations. And he had no idea you wrote novelizations. Ah. He just had no, not not the faintest clue. That's not something he reads. So he was, he was, a, he was a little disappointed. I wasn't going to be focusing on your, on your, to him, quote unquote, real work a little bit. So it's a funny, it's a funny matrix you exist in. And I definitely know what you mean about if you didn't have the, the um, quote unquote, more legitimate original work that maybe it would feel uh, a reason to be insecure. But to me, your work is very cohesive. When I read one of the novelizations, it reminds me of the original work. It doesn't feel like it doesn't feel like you've put less effort or intelligence or, or artistry into it. It just doesn't. I don't. It, it's I'm collaborating with somebody else. Do you get this all the time? Usually it's the other way around. People have read a novelization or two. They have no idea. To this day, they have no idea that you've done original work. Yeah. I, mean, I see because I do follow uh, comments on interviews and reviews and, and people will say, well, he just does this. And I have... I have no way of telling them, well, there's like 70 original books out there or whatever it is. I don't even know myself at this point. But it's like, it's funny when you have a life like that. Uh, people who read my books and stories, most of them don't know unless they've read a biography that I do competitive powerlifting. <laughs> and, and in the reverse, people, people at a meet have no idea that I'm a writer unless it gets mentioned somehow. So it's, it's kind of nice to be able to compartmentalize these different parts of your life if you're fortunate enough to have them i did notice are those your trophies in the background there that we're seeing well you've got good vision way in the background yeah <laughs> well they're yeah, huge they're, trophies <laughs> well the trophies that's the way the, that's the way society is the huge trophies are for picking uh pieces of metal up off the floor and the little tiny trophies are for writing <laughs> <laughs> so there you have a physical comment on, on society's priorities which extends all the way to what professional athletes get paid versus uh, Nobel Prize winning professors. <laughs> it's 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 a delight to go onto your website and uh, go to your awards page and scroll down all your writing awards, and then it gradually transitions into your powerlifting awards. That's terrific. Uh, yeah, what Chris mentioned about you know his father kind of being of another generation and kind of knowing your uh, original science fiction work more than the novelizations, I think also speaks to what we've been trying to get at in terms of like people in a far generation appreciating the work more uh, just as a way of transitioning into what's going on with you now. Um, I would just want to make a parallel connection to you and one of, I know your literary hero is Mr. Carl Barks, who for people who don't know uh, was a comic book artist and writer who created the uh, Duckburg and the, the world of Duckburg wrote uh, Donald Duck and Uncle Scrooge comics created those characters in that world uh, very hugely influential and very very uh, beloved and uh, remembered th to this day but at the time that he was writing it of course Walt Disney himself the man who was still alive of course at the time had no use for comic books and thought very little of them did not hold him uh, Barks's work in high esteem it was just another thing that his property was appearing in that was making him money and i kind of look at comics in the 30s and 40s and 50s when he was writing them as sort of the way novelizations are seen now and another parallel between you and mr barks 
after he retired, and I'm sure you're aware of this, you've written about him before. Um, after he retired from comic books, started doing these amazing paintings using the characters from Duckburg, something that he had specifically sought permission from Disney to do. Uh, but then there became a certain point, I'm guessing, when they were developing Mickey's Christmas Carol and DuckTales in the 80s, where they basically told him, sorry, you don't have permission to do this anymore. Characters that he created, he wasn't allowed to uh, to, to create and put out there in the world anymore for his fans. Uh, and I think that's just sort of sums up Disney as an organization there. Their kind of main thing is making money and suing people more than respecting an artist and someone who is actually creating an amazing uh, work using their property. And one thing I do want to mention before we dig into all of this, I know that Disney uh, wanted you to sign an NDA, a non-disclosure agreement, just to begin negotiating on this. So John and I both appreciate if there's any questions or issues you feel like you need to demure from uh, for legal reasons or because to help your position, we obviously uh, will will understand the reasons and, and take no for an answer. But I think that also it should be mentioned, John and I feel very strongly about this and the opinions of John Cribbs and Chris Funderburg are separate from the opinions of Alan Dean Foster. So if we, you know, say, state our feelings on Disney, uh, they're obviously completely separate from you. And that's what we'd want to say before we dig into all this. Well, this may seem an odd way to begin all this, but in defense of Disney and Carl <laughs> Barks, what happened is I recall it is that, uh, first of all, Barks was the only artist Disney, the corporation, ever gave permission to do, uh, to sell uh, uh, drawings of Disney characters for his own profit. Disney got a cut, but yeah. he was the only allowed to do that. And what happened was a fan ran off a hundred copies or so prints of one of Barks's paintings and sold them at San Diego Comic-Con. And that's what caused Disney to have to tell Barks, I'm sorry, you can't do this anymore. Mm, okay. So your position is the fans are bad. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> that's, I'm that fan was bad. Yes, absolutely. Bad fan, naughty fan. <laughs> you don't do that. It happens all the time. But basically, he's not just ripping off Disney. He's ripping off Parks, too, because Parks got nothing out of that. That was just absolutely you know, a fan with a copying machine. Yeah. So there is in the modern era, that's <laughs> something you run into a lot when negotiating copyright issues is that you have conglomerates who are behaving in a sometimes unethical way. And then you also have fans who are behaving in an equally unethical way in regards to re reproduction and profiting off of material. So, you know. Yeah, the other thing is, since Barks was one of my formative influences, if not the formative influence, is if it had been up to me, I would have run the DuckTales show saying Walt Disney presents Carl Barks DuckTales. <laughs> Absolutely. But, 100%. Uh, later, and later today, uh, because the new show is good too, presents, you know, DuckTales, Carl Barks and Don Rose's DuckTales. Hmm. So I'm very big on, you know, the creators of the actual material getting that. But Disney was like that. And by Disney, I mean Walt from the very beginning. Everything you ever saw, whether it was animation, live action, true life adventure, nature documentary, it was always Walt Disney Presents. Yeah. The corporate logo, the corporate umbrella was, was very important. And also the reason the Copyright Act has been extended so uh, beyond all sense and reason is Disney, obviously, and the, the lobbying in California. The Copyright Act, which was originally 28, life, creator's life plus 28 years, has now been moved up to, I think it's uh, 
67 years or something like that. It's, it's been extended a very long time specifically so that Disney would not lose the copyright on Mickey Mouse himself. It was sort of calculated out from that moment for a number of years. Well, you can't blame a corporation for trying to protect its properties, whether it's the right thing to do or not, or whether, whether yeah. the right length is correct or not. I don't know. I'm not going to get into that. Yeah, I absolutely. will mention the example of Dan O'Neill and the Air Pirates, yeah. which was right. an underground mm -hmm. comic, a couple of them actually, uh, using Mickey Mouse and, and that whole Mickey Mouse universe as the basis for comics. The fact that Dan O'Neill was a really good artist made it more difficult. It looked like something that came from Disney, yeah. which obviously did not. And uh, does it fall under the heading of satire and therefore public use, or does it remain under copyright? And I'm not going to get into the legal arguments for that, but I will say that subsequently there have been many, many comics, comic, uh, no, comic strips featuring Disney characters that do fall under the heading of satire. Yeah, and I think Air Pirates is kind of a singular thing, too, where they were trying to provoke Disney specifically. I think when there was no response initially, I think they actually sent copies of it to the Disney lawyers just so they would know it existed and could respond to it. If you're going to poke the tiger, the tiger's eventually going to bite your hand. That's, that's, that's a whole separate thing. But for example, driving through East Africa, which my wife and I did decades ago, you see all of these little shadines, uh, these and, and what we would call fast food stores, and they're all decorated with Disney characters. Hmm. Yeah. And I don't see Disney lawyers running through Kenya and Tanzania trying to shut these places down. It's difficult to know where to draw the line. And we see this every day, uh, not just in America, but all over the world where somebody will come up with something and call it, uh, there was one involving Kentucky Fried Chicken recently, where somebody in China had opened something and the initials were, I don't know, Keto Fried Chicken or something like that, and used the same logo style and was an obvious copy. There's a car company called, does, I'm not probably not pronouncing it right, Sepeng, which basically has copied the Tesla Model S. Yeah. I mean, it looks like a Tesla, but they say, no, it's all original with us. And uh, so this is why we have, uh, this is why we have more lawyers than we probably should have. But. Well, let me ask you about your specific issue and yeah. correct me if I'm understanding it right, is that here in 2020, Disney owns the rights uh, or the contracts to five of your novelizations uh, in extension novels, Star Wars, Splinter of the Mind's Eye, Alien, Aliens, and Alien 3, and they are not compensating you for royalties. Am I understanding this correctly? Am I uh, phrasing that <laughs> with accuracy? No, that's right. The, the thing that first got our attention, and by our, I mean myself and my agents, is that after Disney acquired 20th Century Fox, which gave them the rights to the Alien books, and after they acquired Lucasfilm, which uh, gave them the rights to the two Star Wars books. Which are 2019 and 2012, respectively. The early right? Star Wars books, we always continue to get royalties and royalty reports for The Force Awakens and for the original novel, The Approaching Storm. Uh, what first drew attention to our current situation is the fact that not that we did not get royalties, stopped getting royalties, but we stopped getting royalty reports. So yeah. there was nothing basically. And my agents at the Virginia Kid Agency in Pennsylvania uh, wrote letters and tried to make contact and kind of got uh, 
this is not a legal term, but got the runaround. It was like, we'll get back to you. And we understood that it might take some time for whatever lower level person was responsible for sorting this out to get back to us, essentially never got back to us. And then when my agency pressed the issue, there was this issue of, uh, there were two things. There was the issue of the NDA, which they wanted us to sign before they would start talking about it, which my agents who have been in business for many decades had never encountered before. I mean, you agree to talk and you come to a settlement. And I've been through this with a major Hollywood studio before on a settlement. And you come to an agreement on how things are going to play out. Then you sign the NDA, which says you don't talk about the agreement. You don't sign the NDA first and then try to talk about the agreement for the obvious reason that once you've signed the NDA, if they say, well, screw you, sue us, you can't talk about it. Yeah. Talk about anything related to it. So there's that thing. They want you to give up all of your leverage to even open the negotiations. It's, that seems crazy. That's right. And saying that this is, well, this is the way we do business. That's not a valid legal justification, really. Uh, At least not in my mind. Um, Uh, I agree. Have they made any public justification or is it still in the runaround phase? Have you heard, have they said, we don't believe that we purchased, you know, the contracts along with this or, or have they just, has it been essentially, my understanding is that it's been in the, we're looking into it phase for a long time now. Uh, before we, before I address that, yeah, what got the science fiction writers of America involved, heavily involved was word came back from Disney. And again, we're talking about low level people, but they're responsible for this. So uh, they came back and essentially said that, uh, well, yes, we purchased the rights to these properties, but not the obligations. Okay. That's where CIFLA really got involved and rightly so, because essentially what you do is uh, you buy a publishing company and you get all the rights to all the books, then you set up a subsidiary company, assign the rights to them, but not the obligations and publish whatever you want without paying anybody. And this obviously has applications throughout a great deal of US copyright law. What you just asked about is uh, all I can say, uh, and we address this at the beginning of the hour, is that uh, as they would say in Hollywood, my people are talking to the mouse's people. So we are talking. Okay. Is at the talking stage. And by talking, I don't mean that Disney said, well, we'll get back to you. We are actually seriously talking. Now, I, I emphasize that, but I don't want to have to come back in a month or two and say, we're talking. It should be resolved well before then because everybody understands the issues that are at stake uh, and it's just a matter of nailing things down. So that's good. That is good. Whether it would have happened without the involvement of the Science Fiction Writers of America, which is a very strong writers organization, uh, going public, I don't know. I mean, we can hypothesize about this just like we can hypothesize about retconning episode eight of Star Wars. Yeah. (laughs) Speculate on these things forever. But I can say that we are talking and I don't want to come back and do podcasts in a month or two and say, we're talking. We want it resolved. And subsequent to all of this, and I'm sure you know, other writers have suddenly appeared with the same complaint. It's like, nothing's happening. Nobody's talking to my agent. Nobody's talking to me. And 
there, there was some discussion, of course, as to whether or not to go public with this. And I don't like going public with it. I'm not getting any pleasure out of this. Yeah. All I wanted was my royalties. Yes. Perfectly happy to keep it all quiet. But keeping it quiet didn't work. It's amazing what happens if you don't stay quiet. The other thing was because of my age and physical situation uh, and the fact that I have had some success as a writer, I felt that I could afford to deal with this. Whereas somebody who might have, you know, two books and three novelizations or two novelizations and one book can't afford to do it. And is 30 or 40 years old, can't afford to do it. So I felt it was incumbent on me to move forward with it. Well, that was, those are two of the big red flags to me as an outside observer when you watch how uh, these negotiations are done. The first one is that younger writers, writers that are still um, more in the thick of their career, Disney owns everything now. And to bite this hand in any way, you're going to be hard pressed to find a corner of the entertainment industry that they don't have um, some kind of watchword over in some way that it, it would be very, that you're staking your career on saying, I need to be paid what I'm owed in some way. And so that is a big red flag. The other one is, this smells a lot like when companies that have hundreds, if not thousands of lawyers on retainer, drag things out to make it financially destructive for individuals to pursue what they're owed. That if you're 30 year old writer who's just looking to get his royalty check, that's only a couple thousand dollars, but means a lot to you. For you to go get a lawyer and go up against Disney, you will quickly realize this is financially destructive to try and simply get the money you're owed. Those are the two things for me that the outside I look at and immediately worry about. What if you're a 30 year old writer and you don't belong to a writer's organization? You don't even have that leverage. And we have had, by we, since it's more than me, uh, myself, my agents, and SIFWA, have had offers from, in one case, from well, at least one case, one rather well known entertainment industry lawyer based in Los Angeles to do this as a class action suit on behalf of myself and these yeah. other writers. But I, I don't want it to go to that stage. I really don't want it to go to that stage. Uh, but for one thing, well, we're talking. There's no reason to go to that stage. Yeah. If talking stops and everything goes away, that becomes a whole different issue. And we're not at that issue, so there's no point in doing it. But yes, if you're 30 years old, you don't belong to a writer's organization, you can't afford a lawyer. You just can't do it. And corporations, and I don't mean to single out Disney here, corporations, all corporations know this. If you yeah. develop a piece of software, and suddenly it shows up with IBM, for example, in their commercial software. Uh, what are you going to do? Sue IBM? You're going to go get, you know, Joe down the street at the local offices to sue IBM? And you don't even have a chance of a class action suit there because it's just you. Yeah. And this has happened throughout the history of capitalism. And sometimes it even gets made into a movie. Like the gentleman, who, the gentleman who invented intermittent wipers for cars. Exactly. I was thinking of that just as you were, you were bringing it up. It's basically sue us. I mean, I remember most prominently the case of Art Buchwald. Mm -hmm. Soon because he said the movie Coming to America was based on a treatment, not even a story or a book. Treatment he'd actually submitted to the studios. And that went on for years and years and years. And if you look like somebody who is the most noted political commentator, columnist in the United States, 
and he has to go on for years and years like this. It presents a very difficult example for your 30 year old writer with one book. Yeah. But, you know, I'm going to, I can do this. So I'm doing it. Also, yes. it's the right thing to do. And the saddest thing about it all, the saddest thing about it all is if somebody at a lower level in the accounting department at Disney had simply said, well, this gentleman is owed these, these royalties for these books. Let's go dig the change out of, um, out of the chairs at the, at the executive commissary at the studio and we'll pay him off. Yeah. None of this would have happened. None of yeah. that would have happened. But it's happened, so we're talking about it. And that's also why I think what you're doing is is very important because you do have this uh, Science Fiction Fantasy Writers Association behind you is that you can get this company on the record about what their position is so that other individuals, hopefully it won't come to a class action suit where they can just say, my situation is the same as the one you just resolved and have uh, some kind of uh, precedent to stand by in that way. Uh, and and I agree. I, I sincerely hope that it to me, it seems like such a cut and dry issue. It makes my blood boil like this is this is this is money you are owed. This was not a renegotiation. This was not a change in plan. This is simply money that they're trying to see if they can avoid paying you for whatever reason, whatever their position is. And it's just easy to see how that will ripple out to a bunch of other people who don't have the leverage and publicity even that you do. So I'm very glad you're you're doing this. It's something uh, I admire a huge amount. Well, it, it just seems so straightforward, but these things don't always work that way. The first line of the contract for Alien, which I just had occasion to look at recently, says that this contract shall be binding between my name and Warner Books, publisher in parentheses, and their heirs and assigns. That's the yeah. first line of the contract. So who's the heir and assign of those books currently? It's Disney. It's not complicated. Yeah. It's not complicated. As some legal people have pointed out in various comment columns on various sites, uh, if there's something in there that says that this is only binding on Warner Books or that this contract terminates five years after it's signed or anything like that, you have a whole different situation. But when yeah. you have the line heirs and assigns, it's seems to me at least very straightforward <laughs> so it should be settled in a straightforward manner again there's no reason for what's going on there really is no reason and you have to think that somebody way down the hierarchy in the accounting department said well we can just ignore this once they were contacted by my agent repeatedly we would just they'll go away and that's what happens unfortunately a lot of times in these situations is the people with the right to the income they just go away. Yeah. And now that you've made it public, they have to address it. They can't just uh, damn you with silence as they've been doing all these past few years. Uh, have you gotten a, any response from the writers and publishing community? I'm sure probably Del Rey and Lucasfilm and Warner Books and 20th Century Fox are totally sitting out of it. But, but among your peers, uh, have you gotten a lot of support since uh, this has been made public? Publishers have tended to be quiet about it. <laughs> I understand. They have a lot more writing financially on the outcome of this than uh, individual writers do. As far as the writers go, the support has been uh, tremendous. I mean, writers I've never heard of, writers I don't know. Everybody online is uh, saying what we've been saying essentially for the last hour. 
uh, this is wrong. It needs to be resolved. It needs to be resolved this way. And I get that from people. Uh, I get that from people who probably don't like me. But there's a principle at stake that goes far beyond who the person involved is. It's the principle that's important, not me. So yes, the support from the writers community has been uh, outstanding. And not just the writers community, but the fans. I mean, you can't fool fans anymore. This is not the 1950s and 1940s. Everybody has been immersed from the time they're born in books and motion pictures and their relationship. It's one reason why I think, uh, you know, Disney again, John Carter of Mars wasn't a big success as a film because every kid above the age of six can look at pictures from Mars and not see a bunch of thoughts running around. Uh, they say, well, that's not right, daddy. There's nothing like that on Mars. And then to go ahead and make a picture that purports to be something else. They should have just moved it to another solar system and worked with it that way. But nobody asked me. Nobody ever asked me. Since you, brought up, um, since you brought up Art Buchwald, I feel like I just need to ask you really quickly about something you probably can't talk about too much, but uh, fans know very well uh, about a uh, legal recourse that you sought against a film company some years ago that borrowed a little too readily from one of your books, uh, something to do with changing the name of the planet Midworld to Pandora, perhaps. But uh, I just wanted to ask, uh, I know you wanted to push that a little bit further to make it a little bit more public, because obviously you probably wanted to be acknowledged for the thing that had happened, this uh, just transgression against a writer that had happened. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? That's your own personal opinion. I have no idea whatsoever. <laughs> Pure speculation. Absolutely. Do you, you know, that was one thing I was going to ask with the, the talk about the non-disclosure agreements, but I think you've made it clear uh, that you don't in this instance feel blanketed from being an advocate for yourself uh, on on this current issue, which I, I think is a good thing. You know, before this talk, I was really, really uh, in uh, felt much more uh, uh, dark about what was happening with you, but you seem to have a, a positive uh, attitude on it in the moment. Am I reading too much into how you feel about how the negotiations are going? Or is this, you know, we got to be ready to ring the bell in another two months and, and have you back and really, uh, you know, say what needs to be said? What's your feeling on how it's headed? At this point, we're talking. Okay. That's, that's all I can say at this point. If you come back in a month and ask me again and I say we're talking, uh, I may put a different inflection in my voice. <laughs> if you come back in two months, I definitely will. But we're talking and hopefully it'll all be resolved and we won't go away, um, not just for my benefit, but it is far more, far more to Disney's benefit to get this resolved and out of the public eye uh, than to keep going on and on about it. I know they know that. That's why we're talking. Um, that, that's all I can say at this point. Uh, I will say that once it is resolved, I will be very happy to talk about it uh, just just as loquaciously as I'm talking about it now. And everybody will know situations resolved, resolved amiably, otherwise it wouldn't be resolved. And, you know, that's the end of that. And hopefully uh, it will never occur again for anybody else. I had, I had one final question. I'm sure John has maybe another comment or two. You, by, by writing... Um, 
you know, the original novelizations of Star Wars and, and the first sequel novel, you were viewed, I'm not sure if you know this, as one of the fathers of sort of extended universe stuff, right? And with how big extended universes, the Marvel extended universe and the Star Wars extended universe and all that, do you feel some kind of larger connection to this culture that you're somehow right there if you're not the seed if george lucas is the seed you're the water in some way what's your relationship to just how massive this business has become that you were in, in creative business and world building business and and something that's really life for a lot of people how do you feel about all of that well, i didn't feel that way at the time but nobody <laughs> did because what you just described didn't exist. Of course, I feel a deep connection to Star Wars. If I didn't feel a deep connection to Star Wars, I wouldn't have said anything about episode eight. And I certainly wouldn't have written a partial treatment for a proposed episode nine and put it online, which I did for the fans. I never had any realistic expectations, one always hopes, realistic expectations of Disney doing anything with it because the film was already in production. But I felt as a fan and as a writer who'd been involved with this universe from the beginning, to try to do what I could, because I am ultimately a supporter of logic and reason. That's why I wrote that partial treatment that I did. A lot of people hate it. They absolutely hate it. What they don't understand is the purpose of that was to try to retcon what went on in episode eight. If I had been asked to write a treatment for episode eight, would have gone in a completely different direction from what I posted as a retcon for the existing episode eight. But the people who hate the treatment that I did don't seem to understand that. That's not what I would have written if episode eight didn't exist, would have gone in a very different direction. Also, the people who hate it don't seem to have any valid, I'm not going to go on and on about this, but those fans who hate it don't seem to have any valid arguments, or at least I haven't seen any, for what's wrong with it. They just don't like certain things about it. I refuse to believe Star Wars fans are ever irrational and emotional and opinionated. This well, does not jive that. with my experience. I don't know if you've read it, but the, the, the fact that Ray yeah. has an electronic implant that lets her do certain things is yeah. deliberately designed to retcon her ability, her sudden abilities from episode eight. Just saying that she's stronger at the four. Well, we could go on and on about this, obviously. <laughs> but if I had, if I'd been asked to suggest ideas. For episode eight before it was done or to write anything for it i would have done something very different from the retconning treatment i did for episode eight the two different two different animals entirely absolutely I think fans would have loved to have seen it i want fans to understand that i think fans would love to have seen a uh, original alan dean foster sequel to uh, Force Awakens as a novel would have been amazing if that was at all legally possible to do. Uh, I mean, I'll say that, you know, I was not a big fan of Force Awakens myself, the movie, uh, but I still bought the novelization because your name was on it, because I wanted to hear, read your interpretation of it. And I think this kind of gets to our passion, especially for what's going on and the idea that you're being, uh, having to go through all of this is that we immediately recognize your contributions to this world, to these things that we love. And I feel like this company that we've been talking about does not appreciate that contribution. Uh, please just keep talking about it because these guys wouldn't even be 
wouldn't even move things forward if people weren't talking about it yeah. and it wasn't in the public eye and it's and very speaking about it is a that way huge amount of leverage to just talk about it is a huge yes. amount of leverage uh, and i'm so so looking forward to the director should have shot you your book where you uh collect uh these anecdotes about uh your novelization experiences for the fans can i just ask you real quick what uh what what compelled you to finally put it all down in a book uh things like this podcast people kept asking the same you know the questions over and over again which i was happy to answer over and over again but it finally occurred to me that i'm not that 30 year old writer i'm that 74 year old writer and that there will come a, come a time where my force ghost won't be able to do podcasts and there needs to be a way of setting these things down because it's history of a sort it may not be you know the history of the napoleonic wars but it is history and people are interested in such things. So I thought insofar as I could remember them, because I never took notes on any of this, that I would try to construct a book starting with Luana and finishing with the last novelization I did, which was Alien Covenant, and get it, get it all down so that people could read it. Not, not so that I would preempt podcasts, because it's always <laughs> fun to talk to people, but so that people who didn't have the opportunity to listen to podcasts or didn't have the opportunity to talk to me would be able to read my history of involvement with all of these uh, with all of these film adaptations. It comes out, the tentative publication date from Centipede Press is April, the title you already right. mentioned. It's not a long book. It's not a heavy read. It's not the war and peace of movie novelizations. <laughs> but it's what I could remember insofar as I could remember. Um, things about my involvement. I'm sorry, there's not a whole lot of, for some people, a whole lot of dirt and deep information on the movie industry, because it's not about the movie industry. It's about these books. And when you're writing a book, it's very different from being on a set. You don't have the opportunity to observe, for example, Tom Cruise upbraiding people on the set for not wearing masks. Um, so there aren't that many anecdotes, but I think there are enough to keep people involved and entertained. Outstanding. We're looking forward to it. And we are so deeply honored to have had you on the episode to talk about these things, despite the fact that it comes from a, a negative place of uh, legal troubles that you're having. Uh, it's just wonderful to hear these stories from you and, uh, and, and spend this time with you. So thank you very much, Mr. Foster. Yeah, thank you so much for doing the episode. It's a pleasure to be here, guys. Excellent. Well, thank you, everybody. Again, uh, keep this story in the public until it gets resolved. Sounds like things are looking up more so than they were a few months ago. So that's terrific news. Um, check out Mr. Foster's website for updates on his new books. Uh, and just keep reading his work. He's uh, just a fantastic, it's a legend among, among writers, in my opinion. Yeah, I hope you understand. I'm sure you hear it, but there's certainly do a niche of our generation you are a legendary writer uh in in your own regard so i hope that's not not overstating it but certainly if you care about novelizations you are you you are writing the war and peace of novelizations you you are are that figure for it so thank you so much for being on the show again it was a pleasure as you probably figured out i like to talk <laughs> i have no problem talking one great one story, and then I'll leave you guys because real life calls. Robert Block and I were co-guests of honor at a convention in Tucson yeah. many years ago, and Robert became a good friend, and uh, uh, we had a day off, a morning off, and 
he was like, well, what should we do? And I said, well, I know the Arizona Sonora Desert Museum, which is actually a zoo. Great place to walk around. And we did that and we're walking around and we're discussing things. And I'm, you know, this young squirt. And we got on the subject of Lovecraft and I mentioned Cthulhu. And Bob said, that's not how it's pronounced. Interesting. Me being a smart ass, I didn't say that. I said it something else, another way, Cthulhu or something like that. And he said, no, it's pronounced Cthulhu. And I said, well, how do you know? And he said, because I asked Lovecraft. <laughs> and so you try to make these connections for younger people so that they will have you know, some sense of what these people were like. That's another reason why I wrote the book I did. Uh, you know, you, you try, you try to do that. You become, if you live long enough, you become history.